folks, thank you very much for inviting me to this talk. I'm happy to be here. When I was asked by the organizers what I would like to speak on, I said I'd like to speak on what India can become in the next 10, 12 years. We must always remember that India was once the largest economy in the world, the richest country in the world. From the time of the Christian era, India was 35% of world GDP till 1000 ADE. Then China took over for 500 years. Then India came back. Then started the devastating Mughal rule, which killed a lot of people. And even though per capita income stayed less, our wealth did not go up. Then came the British to trade with the Mughals. And they started looting. Between 1757, after the Battle of Plaza, till they left in 1945, the amount of wealth they took away in today's money is said to be $45 trillion. And that is the amount of money given by a researcher from Columbia University in New York. He calculated how much money was there. There's a separate issue. So in 1947, we were a poor country with 11% literacy and a GDP which has not grown from 1900 to 1947. But in 1947, when India became free, it was still the largest economy in Asia because China had a civil war, was devastated. Japan was destroyed in the war. Southeast Asia had a war. And India had an economy which was working with industry. And then Pandit Nehru took over. We got a constitution on 26th of January, 1950. Pandit Nehru's rule was not very good for the economy of this country because from 1950 to 1980, we only grew at 3.5% a year. Population grew at 2.5%. Our women did not get educated. And we suffered compared to the rest of the world. The whole world economy grew at 4.5% a year. So the largest economy in Asia became the poorest economy in Asia by 1980 because of the suppression of private capital by Pandit Nehru. Pandit Nehru did not like business. He liked the public sector. There's nothing wrong in the public sector, except that you have to encourage private capital because this country belongs to everybody. Throughout history, we have become rich because we were a trading country. We were used to trade with the rest of the world. We're the largest producer of textiles in the world, Soneki Chidiya. People used to come to us from all around the world for the wealth that India had. You must remember when Nadi Shah sacked Delhi with the Mughals, he took away caravans load of gems and jewelry. You want to see India's wealth? Go to the Iranian Central Bank in Tehran. I've been there. A very, very big basement full of casket of pearls, diamonds, precious stones. The Koinur, you know, Koinur throne is there. So much of wealth is looted from this country. So we are a rich country. Please remember that. And Pandit Nehru destroyed the economy by focusing on the public sector and because he did not want private sector, did not like the private sector. Gandhiji had told us, this desh mein sarkar vyapari hai, us desh mein janta bikari hai. This desh mein sarkar vyapari hai, us desh mein janta bikari hai. And Nehru was influenced by the Fabian Socialist of Cambridge in the UK, and he bought the Soviet model. 1980, we started opening up. 1980 to 1990, we grew at 5.5%. Our debt grew from $20 billion to $80 billion. And 1991, we had a foreign exchange crisis. And the license quota regime started by Pandit Nehru at centralized economic vision in Delhi. And Delhi had become extremely corrupt. A corrupt place where minister decided they took bribes, they destroyed the initiative of Indians, took away economic freedom. India got an economic freedom in 1991 when India liberalized. When India liberalized, 
India had a GDP of 275 billion. From there till 31st March 2020, we grew to $3 trillion, a growth of 8.6% a year in dollar terms. 8.6%. First 30 years, we grew at 3.5%. Population grew at 2.5%. Per capita income grew 1%. We remained poor. Next five years, 5.5%. Population grew at, you know, 2.25%. And after that, from 1991 till 2000, we grew at 8.6% in dollars. All this in dollars. And their population grew at 1.6%. When Mao Tse-sung took over China in 1949, he made the remark, women hold up half of heaven. He educated China's women. So when China opened up in 1978, you know, China grew. China's economy was the same as India in 1978. Today, they are $16 trillion. We are $3 trillion before COVID. We did not educate our women. Half our population is women. We did not educate our women. Our literacy rate was very low. Today, our literacy rate is 77%. China is 96%. So the mistakes that are made in the first three decades of independence is something that we're paying for right now. So for India, it's very important to grow the economy right now from $3 trillion to $10 trillion by maybe 2030, 2032. Is it possible to do? And what needs to be done? And why should we grow economy? Because we want a country where everybody's basic needs are met. Everybody should have a roof over the head, toilet in the house, power in the seat, water in the tap, a road to the house, education for the children, medical care for themselves, money in the bank, a bank account, a mobile connection, internet connection, and they must have good, reasonable job prospect for the children. We graduate one crore young people every year. We are 3.8 crore young people in college, but a gross enrollment rate is only 26.5, 26.7. Luckily for us, women graduate more than men last year. So the women of India are going to transform India in the next 10, 15 years. So this is the situation in India. So how does India look at? GDP, $3 trillion, 2020 has come down to 2.7. This year will go back to 3.1, 3.2. So last year was the COVID year. Economy came down. Our population is not a problem. We hear many people in Delhi saying population, the problem is not a problem because our fertility has come down to 2.0. Replacement rate is 2.3 because of high maternal mortality and children and, 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 and children mortality, child mortality. So in the whole of the South, fertility has come to 1.7. Bengal is 1.6. Punjab is 1.6. Bihar is 3.2. UP is 2.6. And everywhere, people are having lesser children. And data shows you educate the woman, she has lesser children across all communities. The Muslim community is behind the other communities by maybe 10 years. Same as the AC community, because they're not well-educated too, like the other communities. And I think it's an important point for us to understand. For the last 30 years, we've been producing two and a half crore babies a year. Two and a half crore babies a year, and population has stabilized. So growth in population is not a problem. The problem is, when young people get educated, how do you create jobs? How do you give them a good quality of life? How do you give them a good education? How do you give people health? Today, out of 1.38 crore people, um, after 138 crore people, maybe 10 crore people are beyond the age of 60. By 2030, about 20 crore people will be beyond the age of 60. So we are aging. So the next 10 years are going to be extremely crucial for India. And that is what I want to talk about right now. And that's why economic growth is important. Now, how will an economy grow? What do we need to do? What are the challenges India faces? Let me give you by giving you some data. If you look at the composition of our GDP, 
about 50-60% of our GDP comes from services. About 17% comes from agriculture. That is about 87, that is about 77%, 23% comes from manufacturing. We have 43% of our population depend on agriculture, which grows only 3% a year. Industry and services grow at 7.5-8% a year. The income of people depend on agriculture is only 55,000 rupees. The income of people who work in industry is 1,65,000 rupees a year. The income of people who work in services is 2,25,000 rupees a year. Is 1 is to 3 is to 4. In Karnataka, where I come from, only 30% of people depend on agriculture. Agriculture is 11% of GDP. Services 66%. And the ratio is 1 is to 4 is to 5. So we have to understand that we can't have 43% of population depending on agriculture because they can't make a living. And the reason is very clear why they can't make a living. We are surplus in food grain. We are surplus in milk. We are surplus in many other things. And they will not be able to get a good price. Agriculture land holding is fragmented. That is one major challenge that uh, we have to face. We have to shift people from agriculture into industry and services and provide them the jobs. Now, what is the number of people to, to agriculture? About 10-11% of population agriculture is fine. We can still produce all the food that we need because agriculture is today automated. Agriculture uses machines and we have very small holdings. Productivity has gone up. If you look at China, China produces two times what we produce in agriculture. And China has only about 15% of its population depend on agriculture. All right. And China has less arable land. India has the largest quantum of arable land in the world. Second largest quantum of irrigated land in the world. We produce 305 million tons of cereals, rice, wheat every year. 320 million tons of fruits and vegetables, second largest in the world. We produce about 215 million tons of milk, the largest in the world. 35 million tons of sugarcane, largest in the world. And we produce, you know, all other things that we need in very large quantum. So we are a major agricultural power and consumption agriculture is coming down. So we have to shift. That's a major problem. The second major problem that we have in this country, which we have to tackle is we are not producing enough jobs. Now, let me give some data. Every year, 2.5 crore people born 20 years ago, 21 years ago, come to the workforce. Or 2.5 crore people, one point, maybe 1 crore people get married or going to agriculture, do not require jobs. We have to produce jobs for 1.5 crore people every year. Out of 1.5 crore people, maybe 1 crore are graduates. We are 3.8 3, 3 crore young people in college, 1.1 crore graduate every year. Many of them don't get a good education, but it's fine. We have to produce some jobs. Out of 1.5 crores, we produce only 1 crore jobs. The data is available. If somebody tells you India is not producing enough jobs, is a lie because they're all leftists. They don't want to see India succeed. When economy goes, it produces jobs. They have to look at the product fund data, ESI data, and look at other data, and I can give them whatever data they want to make, make the case. But we have to produce good jobs. What is a good job? A reasonable job, in my view, which is what pays 50,000 rupees, 60,000 rupees a month. It cannot be less than that. Any job paying 15,000, 20,000 is not good enough. You can't keep body and soul together. And so we have to produce jobs, and jobs can only come through economic growth. But we have to understand what kind of jobs. Everybody cannot become an IT engineer. Everybody cannot become a college professor. Everybody cannot become a government employee. Government only hires about six and a half, seven lakh people a year. Government today has 2.5 crore employees, state and center. About two crore retired people are there on government, on government pension rolls. It's a very large number. 
and totally across the country, we pay 15 lakhs a year. 15 lakhs a year for all the government employees and pension. A large part of our taxes goes to pay government employees' salaries and pension. So we have to produce jobs. So we need labor-intensive jobs. When China opened up in 1978, what did China do? First thing, in the first 10 years, China opened up and gave the right to its farmers to cultivate what they want and to sell at whatever price. And their agriculture production doubled in 10 years. Till then, they had the failed collective agriculture system. Then after that, after 10 years in 1990, they said, we'll have a SCZ in the coast. Entire coastal district made into SCZ. They invited the world's capitalists to come and invest. A lot of people came and invested. There are many girls came from the rural areas, went to the factories, and they stayed there in hostels, worked six days a week, 12 hours a day, and they produced goods. So China uses surplus labor in labor-intensive industries to produce jobs. And because of the large investment that came in, China got a lot of money, and China was able to increase its taxes. So that happened from 1990 to 2000. From 2000 to 2010, China started expanding its infrastructure. Massive infrastructure, massive housing, that created economic growth. From 2010 onward, they started investing in high-tech and universities. China has 1,000 universities. Each university has maybe 25,000, 35,000 students, all residential. They want to outbid the IIT system in India, which is, not, which is good, but not so good. So they have invested heavily, and that's why China's GDP has grown at 9.8% a year for about 35, 40 years continuously. Growth, which has never been seen in world history, in every country, in any country for such a long period of time. So we need to have economic growth and we need to make sure that 70-80% of people get jobs in you know, labor-intensive industries. I'll come back to that. The third problem which is there is urbanization. We are only 36% urban, 31% in 2000, maybe 11, now maybe 36%, maybe 40%, we undercount. Why is urbanization required? Urbanization creates concentration of human activity. Concentration of human activity creates specialization. Specialization increases your productivity. An increased productivity gives more income because it reduces the cost of production. But what do you mean by urbanization? Urbanization doesn't mean everybody comes to Delhi. You know what happened in COVID? The migrants went away and Delhi people treated them very shabbily. And that anarchist Arvind Kejriwal did not take care of them. The Supreme Court passed an order to say, Migrants have to be taken care of by the state government, not central government. He drove them away. We know what he did. He's an anarchist. So we have to be honest when we speak about people and their policies. So we need the labor-intensive industries, and we have to make sure that all of them are, you know, I get this kind of jobs, and only these labor-intensive industries can produce that kind of jobs. And urbanization is required. India has 7,000 census towns. These are not big towns like Delhi, Bangalore, Mumbai, but smaller towns. We need to invest in at least 2,000 towns, make them bigger with population of 50,000 to 1 lakh and get the labor-intensive industries there so that they are in low-cost location. People can come from the uh, villages to work there and they can get 10, 12,000 rupees and stay in their own house. And there's not a bad income for people who can't get that kind of income anymore. And that's required to rejuvenate the rural economy and make it growth and absorb the kind of people that is required for labor-intensive industries. If you look at China's largest exports, it is today garments and textiles. Then comes electronic goods. Then comes light engineering. Then come toys. Then come high-tech, etc. And if you look at our large thing, we are the largest 
textile power. Now we become less than Bangladesh. Bangladesh exports more garment than us, and Bangladesh buys cotton and yarn from India. What is wrong with India? Is bad policy. So we have to lower the cost and do that. The next thing what we have to do is build infrastructure. We have to build our roads. We have to build our ports. We have to build our railways. Supply chain cost in India is 14% of GDP. In the United States, is 5% of GDP. In China, is 6 to 7%. Now we have created GST with one single common market. So India is not one common market. To send goods from Bangalore, Delhi, or to go to check posts, drive everybody. And now there are no check posts. The lorry, which used to take one week to go from Bangalore to Delhi, does it in two, two and a half days. We have to invest in roads. We have to invest in railways. We have to invest in ports. We have to invest in airports. All this is being done today. And that is good news because the GST cost has come down from 14% to 12% because the good roads will come down to 10% or 9% and that will make India more competitive. So if you produce in Nagpur, you could not sell in Bombay earlier because the cost of transportation is very high. Whereas you could send goods from Shanghai to Bombay. It was much cheaper, Shanghai to Bombay, than Nagpur to uh, Bombay. Now the costs are coming down and that is good news. We have to build infrastructure. You'll be shocked to know the railways transport system for freight used to run only 24 kilometers an hour. It used to take forever and share of railways is coming down. Now railways are running at 50 kilometers an hour. When you run at 50 kilometers an hour, you use assets better, costs come down and you become very competitive. So we have to build infrastructure. Then we have to bring human capital. We have to skill our workforce, educate our workforce. China has a gross enrollment rate of about 50, 52. India has a gross enrollment 26. People ask, oh, the education system is not good. You know, university is not good. What are the use of a bad education? Amatya Sen answered that when he said, a bad school is better than no school. At least young people go spend three to four years in college. They get something. They create networks. They know their peers. They grow up. They have a worldview. They learn to negotiate. That is good. India has 1,015 universities, 51,000 colleges, 3.8 crore young people in college. All right? But a gross enrollment rate is only 26.527. In Tamil Nadu, gross enrollment rate is 52. 52% of young people, 18-23, go to college. Karnataka is 36. Andhra is 35. Maharashtra is about 36. In Bihar, it is 14. I think it's gone to 15 now. It's pathetic. West Bengal is 19. UP is doing very well. 26 and a half is a national average. You know, Rajasthan is maybe 24. So the Hindi belt is a problem in lack of education, especially Bihar. And Bihar has got a population of 10 crore people. UP has got a population of 22 crore people. Madhya Pradesh, 22, 23. And that is where there's high population growth and lack of jobs. You'll be surprised to know that the UP graduates 15 lakh young people every year. And women are graduating more. The gross enrollment rate for women in colleges is 26.7 or 26.8, whereas for men is 26.5. So women are taken over. There are more women graduates coming out of India's colleges today. And because women come out in large numbers in UP, BR, and other places, there are no jobs. And that's why women's participation in the workforce has come down. India is becoming much more richer. You know, yeah, women are not going out to work in the fields because it's getting automated. They're going more to college. And then they come out, there are no jobs because they will not migrate. There are men will migrate from the north to the south where a large number of jobs are being done. Women will stay put. That's why the gross enrollment has come down. Not because something else is happening. I think we need to understand this. So we have to invest in human capital. We have to take a gross enrollment rate to 52. We need more scholarship. We need more specialization. We need more research. We need more investment in, in this. Then we need better health expenditure. 
COVID has demonstrated how health is not gone up because of lack of good investment over the last 70 years. We only have one bed, I think, for 1,700 people. And I think the U.S. has about two and a half, four beds for 1,700 people. We need to go up. And India produces 80,000. India has 88,000 seats in MBBS. 60,000 doctors are produced every year. We have a shortage of something like 10 lakh doctors. So we have to expand our health infrastructure. We have to have more expenditure. So all these things have to be done to become a productive nation. So now we know the problems. What are the solutions? Well, to my mind, the solutions are like this. One, infrastructure. This year, India will invest 5.26 lakh crores in infrastructure. We're investing in roads, we're investing in port. That's good. That must continue. And then we must create, we must invest in urbanization. We need money to at least grow 2,000 towns. The smart city is only for 100 towns. We must go to 2,000 towns, put money there and do better. So that urbanization happens. Smaller towns come up, not the bigger towns. Then you must get labor-intensive industries. We must give tax breaks for labor-intensive industries. If you put up a refinery of 20,000 crores, you'll get benefits of maybe 15,000, 20,000 crores and only produce 5,000 jobs. Put up a garment factory for 50,000 people. You may invest 200 crore rupees, but you will have to pay to your nose in bribes because you are hiding so many people and they harass you for hiding people in this country. It's the only country in the world where people are harassed because you know there are too many people you are hiding. And it's very bad policy. We have to have a policy and incentive for labor-intensive industries and get those labor-intensive industries in small towns and become an export superhouse. That's the way to produce jobs. Because once more labor-intensive industries come, more women get employed, more people get employed nearer to the house, they create value, then the service economy comes up and economic development comes up because people will have money to drive consumption. And that, I think, is very important. So urbanization, labor-intensive industries, and infrastructure is very important. And then we must reduce compliances. Mani Sabarwal says industry has to comply with 65,000 compliances. We don't even know how many we got to comply. There's so many laws, unnecessary laws. These are all the product of the control regime of Pandit Nehru and Indira Gandhi. That has to be destroyed. And we should reduce it by half, reduce compliances, reduce government control. And government should sell out the public sector, which are not there. Public sector make loss of 30, 35,000 crores. Air India has lost 70,000 crores. BSNL has lost 70,000 crores. Yes, they give job, but at what cost? We can as well give money to people and ask them to stay home because that money has to go into health, into infrastructure, and not be spent on a small number of people. So we need those kind of policies that has to be done. Then we have to invest in human capital, like I said. Put more money into colleges. Put more money into research. Because today, we are in the knowledge economy. We are the innovation economy. And in that innovation economy, we have to do well. Luckily for us, we have a good IT industry. India has 75,000 IT companies. India exports $160 billion of software. 60% of global outsourcing comes to India. And we have 50 lakh people employed in that industry. Total IT industry is $210 billion this year, which is very, very good and very high for a country of India standing. We're the largest exporter of software services in the world to all the major corporations. Are the top 10 software service companies, the market value, are the most important, most valuable companies, five are Indian. Of the top five, three are Indian. Of the 28 lakh people employed in the top 10, about 20 lakh are Indians. Out of 60 lakh people employed in software in America, 10 lakh are Indians. Of the 50 lakh employed here, two and a half, uh, 25 lakh work for American companies. So out of the 85 lakh working for American companies, 35 lakh are Indians. So we have a highly educated force. We need to grow the economy. Then we have a good startup ecosystem, innovation-driven startup ecosystem. India has 55,000 startups. 
They created value of $315 billion. We have 58 unicorns. They employ 1.2 million people. By 2025, we'll have 100,000 startups. They will create 150 unicorns, billion-dollar enterprises. They create value of $1 trillion, employ 32.5 lakh people. So you must come to Bangalore to see how India is changing. Bangalore has got 35 unicorns out of the 58 unicorns that India has. And Bangalore, out of the population of 1.1 crore, 20 lakh people are employed in technology. Average salary is 15 lakh rupees for 20 lakh. This year will have 4 lakh people in this industry. 4 lakh high-quality jobs are going to be built in Bangalore. And Bangalore exports $60 billion of software. Bangalore's per capita income is $10,000, whereas India is only $2,000 or so. So Bangalore is what India can become in the future. So we need to invest in human capital, education, research, and development. The reason America is doing well is the dominant power is not because America has got armed, because of its universities. They do a lot of research. They bring in new technology. They get in um, new processes. They dominate the world. They invest in, in the knowledge economy, and they're a very large exporter of knowledge services. And that's what we got to do. Then we got to improve manufacturing. In manufacturing, there are three components. Labor intensive, I spoke about, that intermediary goods and basic goods like steel, et cetera, where we have to expand, and high tech. We need a chip factory in India. We need electronic assembly in India. Government has now bought in the PLI scheme, production link incentive scheme for 12 industries. So we'll become an export house, and that will happen. And then. We need lesser corruption. Corruption is the bane. For example, you buy a property to lease the property or to pay bribes. But Delhi, has, corruption is not there in government of India because Prime Minister Modi has eliminated that. There is corruption at the transaction level. There are four kinds of corruption. Transaction level where government authorities will take bribes to do services. That's not gone away. Then there is corruption in government deals. Today, that is not, that's come down because when government does business, you have to apply online. So you may get the business, but they will not pay you money. To pay you money, you've got to give bribes. So still they control you. For example, in Bangalore, if you want to apply for a land, uh, for considering a building, you know, they say it's all online, but you can't upload because the capacity is not there. And when you complain, they say, go to so-and-so architect, come on a Saturday and you can upload and give her this money. They harass us because the money goes to the political leaders. It goes all the way to the top. In many parts of the country, police, police stations have become business centers. Where the sub-inspector spends half the time, you know, settling disputes and trying to make money. That's how corruption should stop. The corruption in Delhi has stopped. The third kind of corruption is policy. How do you go bribe people and change policy? That has stopped. That there in the UPA, you could go to Delhi, change policy, get what you want. We know what happened. It's all a function of the license quota raj. And the fourth kind of pollution was the, the corruption in defense deal and large deals, which is not there today because Prime Minister Modi has made sure. So you must stop corruption. And lastly, we must educate our women. That is why India's laws and constitution discriminates against women. Women are 50% of population. They cannot remain second-class citizens. For example, in the 1950, our founding fathers and mothers promised us in the constitution, right to equality, Article 14, right to life, Article 19, right to religion, 25 and 26. But Nehru did not educate a woman. Did not give literacy. Now education has come, literacy has come. But women do not have equal rights because of personal loss. In matters of property, inheritance, children custody, divorce, etc., personal laws we don't have. What India reads today is the Indian Women Right to Equality Act. So all Indian women are empowered. They get the same rights as men. So we remove discrimination against 50% of our population. So we need to change the laws to make sure 
we take better care of our women, we give them equal opportunities, and we make sure that they are protected, the rule of law is applied. Lastly, along with that, we must change our justice system. We have a broken down justice system, totally broken down. There are so many politicians that assume corruption cases are there, but it takes 15, 20 years. Lalu is still outside. I mean, he's inside now. It took 15 years to put him in jail. There are so many political corrupt cases. Why should the justice system break down? The reason is very simple. We have only 18 judges per million population. We need 50. United States has 100 judges per million population. That is 10 lakh population. We need more judges, a better functioning justice system. We must get justice in three years. And we have Supreme Court talking about public interest litigation, but 65,000 cases are pending there. Ram Janamumi case took maybe 130 years in the court. Remember that? And Supreme Court is there 15, 20 years. They never took up the case. We need to fix our justice system. We need a country where there is justice, where women are treated equally, where we get education, we got infrastructure, we need better policies, we need more honesty. And that can only come if all of you stand up as citizens of this country and demand that from our politicians. So, I want to end here by saying India has grown to 3 trillion. We had to grow to 10, 12 trillion to make sure every Indian has the necessities of life, jobs, and good income and can live a comfortable existence. We remove poverty. We don't have want. And for that, we have to improve infrastructure. We have to educate our workforce. We have to give them better health. We have to have labor intensive policies. We need urbanization. We need reform in our justice system. And we have to make sure that we become an investment-friendly destination. Because for economic growth, there are two parameters, consumption and investment. In India, consumption is 70% of GDP. Investment is 30% of GDP. We need investments because more investment creates jobs, more investments create capacity, more investments create improves productivity. And that leads to jobs. When people have jobs, they spend money that increases consumption. And once it increases consumption, that requires more investment. China invests 45% of its GDP. India invests only 30% of its GDP. And I think we need to increase our percentage of savings and GDP. And that can come only with economic growth. At the end of the day, if you want to be a better country, you want to have more money income, you want to have the necessities of life, you want to have a good living, we need economic growth. And economic growth has to be 9 to 10% to grow to 10 trillion dollars. Can we make it? 80% probability will make it. We have to make it. Our children deserve it. And we have to create a new India. That's what Prime Minister Modi has come. That's why I admire him so much because he's doing everything right to make sure India grows. And India has a very bright future. And India will do very well in the world. We are in the fastest growing region, but we need better policies. We need enlightened citizenry. Thank you very much. I uh, just wanted to add something when you were talking about the policies and how Nehru, uh, we have that legend, you know, when uh, Nehruji told uh, Tata that profit is a bad word. Never talk to me about profit. Yeah, he ruined the economic future of this country, you know. We have, to, we have to acknowledge that because from 1950 to 1980, we grew poorer. The world, the world grew at 4.5, we grew at 3.5%. Japan grew, Southeast Asia grew. China did not grow because of the communist regime. So we should never repeat that mistakes again. Actually, my questions are that where is the money for all these lofty uh, programs? Was a talk sometime back, we are in Sangam talks about comparison with China. And uh, the speaker said that I don't know from where the where China gets money. So my question to you is 
first question where is the money until unless we do deficit financing coupled with more production and second is where are the orders because our quality is not so good as of the china or south east asian countries like thailand vietnam etc so kindly reply to this right look where is the money is an interesting question let me give you data india invests 30% of its gdp today on capital investment 30% of gdp is 900 billion dollars that's a lot of money 30% or that the data that the government has everybody agrees on the data we have to increase that how will that increase come that increase will only come when we save more and invest more we have to take it up to 30 35% and invest more today the corporate sector is investing more they got the money we have got 610 billion dollars of reserves we are getting 75 billion dollars fdi every year so investment for india is not a problem demand is a problem now how do you get demand now let me tell you no country in the world has grown in human history without exporting we have to become export oriented look at the it service industry we export 160 billion in the most high tech industry in the world how is that we do it because we have got good quality the idea that india does not have good quality is very wrong we are exporter of steel exporter of the mobile phones but we are not competitive we have to be competitive to be competitive we have to lower our interest rate our interest rates are now come down if you set up a power plant in 12% interest your cost go up by 50 60% power become very expensive if you set up a power plant at 6% 7% interest your cost comes down so our cost of borrowing has now come down because of a very important reason there is greater liquidity in the marketplace and rbi has been much better rather than controlling yes there is a increase in inflation and inflation has increased primarily because of supply side not because there is excess demand in the economy there is no excess demand so we have to invest all this and we have to export and that's why we need labor intensive industries our textiles can be exported we are competitive but we can't have scale we need more and we have to compete for that we required better labor better labor laws to make sure that we can expand labor and downsize as and when required and that's why we have to be in low cost locations our supply chain costs have to come down which are coming down and that will make us more competitive and that's why you're seeing exports go up this year and i don't accept that the quality is bad i have been all around the world our quality is pretty good the same companies that manufacture anywhere is manufacturing here for example if you look at havels india and delhi the quality of everything is good but they only only selling in the indian market because they make more money what did china do what china did is very interesting china discovered that the only way to grow a market is to scale up to scale up when you produce people should have buying power now indians have buying power say 5000 rupees if you produce a good for 10000 very few people can buy so by increasing scale by exporting you reduce the cost of production to 5000 the demand becomes very large so china the largest producer ac largest producer tv largest producer not because they built up they exported so we have to export and that's why we require better policies the pli policy india makes 250 million mobile phones a year you know we import about 40 billion dollars of electronics today we are exporting 10 billion dollars next year will be 15 billion dollars because government gave incentive for industry to come and manufacture in india and to export in india and to do in india so we have to have a focus on exports and that we can do then we have to focus on exporting our agricultural produce 
You know, today, last year we produced, we exported 1,20,000 crores. We have to produce more and export because the world is short of food grains for various reasons, because of climate change and other reasons. But we have to be competitive. Our cost has to come down. So I think we can do it, but we need better policies and we need to make sure that we are properly focused. We have to incentivize people to expand production and become more export-oriented. Second question was about improving the quality of our products. Yeah, yeah quality. I've answered that. Sir, we export once. Sir, we export $160 billion of software. The world accepts it. We do it very well. We handle some of the most complicated, complex technological work around the world. I think you should come to Bangalore and see the quality. You'll understand. India makes good quality. India makes good. Are you making sufficient numbers? No, that is the problem. We have to expand our production. Our steel is now getting exported to 40 countries. But we are never exporting because we are only looking at the Indian market where people made more money. Let me give you a data. Maruti is a very good producer of small cars. They get 18% operating margin. Ford Motors never had an operating margin of more than 9%. We export $160 billion of software. We export steel. We export mobile phones. We export cars. We are the largest two-wheeler exporter in the world. A lot of good quality is there in this country. I don't agree our quality is bad. Quality is there. But the key question is, are we producing enough high-quality things? No. We have to produce more and export. When I heard you, I, I was equally very enthusiastic and uh, uh, hopeful, but at the same time, very, very depressed. Also. I don't know which side to choose because you say that India has potential. And Sir, come I, to Bangalore. You can no, live in no, Bangalore, you'll be optimistic. The problem here in India, what we see is uh, there are two uh, branches which finally will give shape to or bring, bring everything to the ground, reality. Political, uh, our political force, including the rulers and the opposition, and our bureaucrats who are going to finally implement. Unfortunately, uh, we see very little hope uh, knowing their mindset, their training. Uh, politicians individually are not bad people, but their political implications they will, they put everything upside down. You gave example of our Delhi chief minister, what he did with the workforce. And every politi political party, now their only agenda is to pull down uh, uh, the government. You know, the, uh, those who are in opposition will pull down. Those who are in the power, uh, they, they are non-functional. So when we have such huge dreams, when in spite of having potential, I don't see much hope. Uh, I don't see much light in the end of tunnel. And I'm not one of those pessimist people. I am a very, very optimist. But when I see these two schools, the bureaucrats and uh, the politicians, the way they behave, I don't think India can go ahead uh, with this kind of attitude. Well, let me say this. I agree with you. Because political leaders, the wrong sort, corruption, and the bureaucrats are holding back India. That is true. But despite that, from 1991 till 2020, we have grown at 8.6% in dollar terms. That's good news. And we are seeing the advent of so many new jobs. Go to Gurgaon, you see so many energy, so many things happening. You go to Bellary, you see the steel plant, so many things happening. You go to Orissa, you see so much of growth because Navin Patnaik is there. So I think in UP, UP, I think, you know, Yogi has done a fabulous job. He's cleaned up Yogi. 
is getting all the infrastructure in place. A lot of things are happening. Uh, Bengal is a problem with Didi. Didi is becoming an anarchist. Orissa is doing very well. Karnataka is doing reasonably well. Maharashtra did well. Now it's going back. Tamil Nadu is okay. It's going sideways. Kerala is a gone case. So we are very different things all over the country. But, you know, I have lived through the control regime. I graduated in 1982 and started my career. I lived through the control regime from 82 to 91. I seen the growth from 91 as part of an industry uh, which grew the fastest ever in India's history, part of a company which transformed India, right? And part of the growth of India. So I'm very optimistic. Yes, you have a cause to be, you know, careful and possibly despair a bit. But, you know, I'm optimistic it'll happen. We'll talk again after 10 years. Very nice to see this kind of enthusiasm, especially about economy, because, you know, the media feeds us day in and day night that we are in bad waters. Good morning, Mr. Pai. And my question is about the human and the human resource which is involved in the whole process of, you know, reviving the economy and making it a $10 trillion economy. Taking from what you mentioned that we need to create jobs and we need to create jobs in smaller cities by creating smaller cities and then providing uh, you know, I mean, jobs to the villages. Now, at this point, my question is that we all know that the education system as we see it today has been created for producing employee-minded, uh, you know, youngsters, employment-minded youngsters. There is nothing wrong in it. But do you see scope for... Uh, disruptive school education system, which is designed for producing small entrepreneurs. Sir, uh, I, I agree with you and uh, I'm seeing change in India. I was part of the system which produced job seekers. We had no hope. You know, when I graduated in 1982, I got a rank in my CA inter and final at a rank in my university. I didn't get any job offer in Bangalore, my city. I had 11 job offers outside my city in some of the big companies. And I used to earn only 500 rupees a month. I set up practice as CA. We never made money. You know, I used to go to my mother to ask for petrol for my SD bike. So, you know, we've been through those times. Uh, now, you know, do you, do you see this kind of jobs being created? Yes, large number of jobs are being created. Uh, do you see education playing a role? Yes, more and more of education is improving. For example, India produces 8 lakh engineers. 2 lakh engineers are very good. I hired them. At Infosys, we hired, I hired 2 lakh 50,000 people in 5 years and trained them. Maybe 2 lakhs can be trained. The balance 4 lakhs are just so-so. What to do? But what I'm saying is the quality of the output is increasing in every, all across India. Our education system is going up and we have a problem because there is no country in the world with so many students except India and China. And this year, we have in, our students are more than in China. More than in China. We have more students. Can you give them all quality education? Not possible. Can you invest to give them innovation and the kind of thing? Not possible. Can 25% of the graduates be very good? Yes, 25% is very good. 25% is trainable. Balance are not good. They will get some life skills. They'll go. That's the way it is. Now, the key thing what has happened is, I'm very happy, is the new education policy has come. Now, the new education policy will give freedom to schools and colleges to innovate, 
reduce the information load on students, allow them to think independently, do some problem solving, work with the hand. That is a great hope. We need autonomy for our top 200 universities. We have been fighting for autonomy. We need autonomy. We need reform. That is happening. Is it happening at the fast pace? No. Is it happening at a decent pace? Yes. So I'm optimistic, but your point is very valid. We have to transform education. New education policy is a good start. Yeah, like it happened when, when we started after independence, at that time, at the time of the British, Calcutta was the industrial hub, and West Bengal was the most industrialized. And slowly the political capital moved to Delhi, and the financial and industrial capital moved away from to Bombay and other places because of communism, the rise of communism. And, you know, the frequent student strikes and trade unions. Now, trade unions and reservations is still a problem with our, uh, you know, the PSUs and the industry and educational institutes. So what do you have to say about that? Look, trade unionism has come down because young people don't want to get into trade unions. They want jobs. They're moving around. So in industry, there is trade unionism, but a lot of automation is coming in. And, uh, you know, industry knows how to handle that. And uh, if you talk about, uh, you know, uh, what, is the, what is the second part of your question? I'm sorry, I missed it. Sir, so trade unionism and uh, reservations in PSU. Ah, reservation. Look, look, let me tell you. I was like you who said reservation is bad, but I, I changed my view. Let me tell you why. There's no way that we can get 60, 70% bottom of the pyramid up to some level if you want to have a stable country. When India became free, Political power was in the top 3% of Indians. Western educated, UK educated, like Pandit Nehru, leader of the Congress. Then we had the Zamindari Abolition Act in UP and other places in the first 10 years. So another 10% came into politics. All the rich Zamindars said, we'll go into politics to make money. And then we had the Mandal Commission and all in the 70s, correct? We, I mean, we have, we have seen that happen. So political power came to the other OBCs, came down there. Then we had the reservation for seats. So political power came down. Today, political power in India is the bottom 60%. Look at our leaders. They're coming from the bottom of society. Democracy has come to the bottom. We are a better society. Now you can argue and say, the leaders who come up from the bottom, do they have a vision of India? Are they well-educated? Can they drive India? No. But we are a democracy. We want a stable country. We don't want violence. We don't want deprived people standing up and fighting like it happens in the Maoists and all. We don't want that. We want political power to come down. Now it's up to us, educated people, to engage the political leaders, talk to them, and make it a better society. So people at the bottom have to get power. I asked one freedom fighter. You know, there were only 100,000 Britishers. How did they come and rule this country of 35 crore people? He told me one thing. India was a feudal country. Power was concentrated in the top few people. Every kingdom had only 10 people with power. But the British came from outside, removed those 10 people. They become the Maliks. People did Thalia. That's all. They didn't care because the life didn't improve. So we decided, he said, in the new India, 1950, we'll push political power down to the bottom. So never again can anybody come and rule India with small numbers. You understand what I'm saying? So transformation happened. And then we have to give people who have been deprived of education others equal opportunities. Yes, you may say they're not quality, they're not this, but we have to go through that. There is no other solution. And let me give you some data. You'll be very happy. SC makes up 16.6% of population. They make up 14.9% of students. ST makes up 8.8%. They make up 5.9%. OBC makes up 40% of population. They make up 36% of students. 
Muslim make 15%, but sadly only 5.2% of students are Muslim. But it's going at 7.5% a year. Very good. Muslim girls are coming into education more than Muslim boys. They need education. Today, Muslims have become the poorest community in India because of the bad political leadership and misuse of the you know, minority status, right? And the other communities who used to have 60% share has come down. So, you know, everybody is getting educated. Now, you may say they're not getting good education. Very true. But at least they're going through college. Their children will be better. And let me give some data. You know, a postgraduate today has only 1 to 1.2 babies. That means 1.2. You understand what it is, right? The ratio. Then a graduate has 1.5. A class 10 has 2.5. A class 4 has 4 babies. So today, population growth is coming on because women are getting educated. More and more women are getting educated. So a lot of good things have happened to this country. Reservation has helped create a more egalitarian society. We are a democracy. We need that. Now we can all argue and say, oh, they're not efficient. We have to live through it. There is no other choice. Uh, sir, I agree. It has helped us. When, when the British left, we did need this. But now with four or five generations of reserve class, uh, the brighter people like Sanjeev Sanyal, who is the principal econ economic advisor today, had to leave Calcutta and look for a job elsewhere. And I have taught in Tamil Nadu. All the brighter students have to move Correct. backwards to look for jobs. Correct. So what will happen? Let me tell you. You know, what we need today in the reservation is to say, if in the within the reservation category, if some family has got a benefit of a government job or, you know, free education, oh. they should not get it for second generation, but others within the same category should get it. Now, what has happened? A creamy layer has come up in the reserve category. Generation after generation, they're getting benefits. The creamy layer should be reduced. And we need some Mahadalit and all the kind of stuff that Nitish Kumar did in the rest of the country. Now, I think it's beginning to happen. It'll happen. But you see, it's a political question. Like somebody said, we are a political economy. We are a democracy. We have to learn to live with that, right? I mean, we have to go through that. It'll take another 25 years. Right. And Tamil Nadu has lost its, let me, the Tamil Nadu lost its best and its brightest. They come to Bangalore. Now, you know, I went to Bengal right. because Mamta Didi has this, uh, you know, Bengal big show for industry. I told her, Bangalore has got 1,50,000 Bengali engineers in IT. Calcutta yeah. has got only 50,000. He said, get them here, get them here. Nobody wants to go there. All the bright young people are going away. They will come to Gurgaon. They'll come to Bangalore. So unless Calcutta and Didi changes the policy, they will not come. So now states are competing. So we'll see differential growth rates. So states will be forced to change their policies. They cannot do this discrimination anymore. They will change. Is it going to happen tomorrow? No. It'll take time. Everything takes time. We're a big country. This is very powerful that if somebody has taken that benefit for one generation, second should not be allowed. That, but that but it must not do with reservation. Keep it in the same category. Keep yeah. the... Keep the 22.5% so more people in the same community gets it because you must not do it generation to generation because, you know, it is meant for people. Now, for example, Meera Kumar, you know, our speaker, I mean, why should her children get reservations? Why should she get reservations? She's well off. She should not get reservations. Others should get it. In the SE company, others should get it who are poorer because the poor, see, the poor deserve our support. Let's be very clear. You know, my parents were poor. They got educated. They worked very hard. They educated us. I'm doing well. My children are doing well. My parents are very poor. There are no food on the table. My mother was a rank holder in class 10 in poor district, long back. She could not continue education. She became a school teacher. But you know, we were, we were a poor country, right? So we need one generation to get the break. 
then that will improve but it must go down that is the problem mohandas ji just uh, just i'm just putting uh, my thoughts together uh, I, i come from the manufacturing company and i was extremely proud that my products are exported around the world but the mm. problems i faced is a there's a huge disconnect with what happens in delhi and what's happening with me at the ground level i have to bribe even for my own container to be exported which is stuffed in my own company yeah yeah i found that so weird and the holidays are so huge that i have only a window of monday and tuesday others i am paying demerit charges yeah. there was one 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 uh, feedback number two as a manufacturing company with my own money and rest uh, raised from the bank the banking laws are so archaic it's so cumbersome that i hate going to the bank yeah i hate going with an lc yeah. it takes me time i so that was number the, the point that i that i thought i don't see any changes sir rbi and all these guys are just window dressing at the ground reality it's extremely tough unless i am a bajaj or a tata but then why should uh, why should not young entrepreneurs like us uh, get an even this I so agree. i just so i just so wanted I to ask I, i i commend you for your spirit that despite all these handicaps you're fighting you want to win and you will conquer but you're suffering a lot my absolutely you my only just imagine this was not there you'll do 5x you'll do 5x no, no, absolutely more. sir absolutely uh-huh. mohandas ji i feel it i just want to ask you mohandas ji is because i am looking to now open overseas to overcome this because you see uh, the current first first come to south india come to bangalore or you know tamil nadu somewhere they much better you know okay. they work much better come to south india india is not so bad and then go overseas that's good but before that you must write to prime minister modi write to nirmala sitaraman write to gadkari and tell them you are a citizen you are a young aunt this is what is happening please help give feedback sir i have done i have written to uh, prime minister ji i met gadkari ji in delhi they all said yes rajiv we need young guys like you but that's it and now when i look at the no, new no, keep cabinet meeting them. keep meeting them keep meeting so them when no, i, I, I look at the uh, mohandas ji when i when i see the new cabinet where 23 guys have criminal cases i am even yeah. more disheartened don't be disheartened don't be disheartened we need you to fight the battle No, of course, and uh, Mohandas ji, whatever said and done, I'm extremely proud to be an Indian. I yes. think we need more in more made in India products, yes. even in software, even in engineering. Yes, yes. And whatever said and done, our government and our environment has made us extremely resilient. That doing business yes. around the world is very easy. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You know, so, so I am with. I am with you. I am with you, Mohandas ji, and I would But love to. Yeah, I would love you to fight. take this voice across, and like the gentleman just mentioned, there is a huge disconnect between bureaucrats and the politicians. So I just yeah. hope you can you you can create a critical mass which takes this across. No, no, I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to do that. I need more younger people to fight the battle. I'm trying to do that. And, uh, But do don't give have... up, my friend. Don't give up. Dream big and build this country in the future. You are our future. Uh, do you have any solutions or hints or ideas for Varun? No, I told you solution is to keep trying. What else to do? We have to change the system, right? I told you the system was created by license quota raj, centralization of power in Delhi, lack of empowerment of a communities, and we are all party to that. What to do? Corruption in politics, corruption in elections. See, I can do a litany of all the things that are wrong, but you know. 
we have to look to the future we want to build a better india for our children we want to optimize the children you know we cannot send our children outside and say like all the bureaucrats they send the children outside india and say udhar go to america and work and you know all kind of stuff because they don't see a future in this country that the kind of bureaucrats we have but we have to stay back we have to build this country this is our country we own it our parents fought for freedom our grandparents fought for freedom our you know forefathers gave the great civilization we must stay this country we must fight this back we can't give up we should never give up we should never never give up like you said i am extremely passionate about being india and i want to do something here my products in nigeria are accepted better than a chinese product and i see? command a premium there ah see i'm so proud of you look look i think i believe in prime minister modi because he's sincere he is doing a lot and is doing it but you know the bureaucracy will stifulate the states have become terrorists themselves the states every state thing they do it the state policy i live in karnataka might the bjp government is a very corrupt government extremely corrupt when i go to government tell them for change they all agree they said yes yes will change go after one month yes yes i'll change the bureaucrats say yes everybody says yes nothing happens so we got to keep pushing 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 and something has happened after all this yes what else to do so i think you should become part of cii fiki the only thing i suggest work your way up put your view forward see let me tell you one thing my friend democracy is a system of competitive lobbies okay democracy system of competitive lobbies all of us want something there's not enough to go around so we have to form our lobbies we must go to government tell them we want we want change and everything there'll be something available to everybody to keep the show going but that's the only way it will work otherwise there'll be violence there'll be violence in this country we can't afford that violence we can't afford that poverty deprivation right like reservations are required because that's the only way to help people there's no other way we're done well so it is it painful yes it's painful so my view is if you you know bring about change part by part try to improve productivity talk to cii talk to government give them such for example labor laws 44 labor laws have come into four courts they still not implemented it still not issue the rules but at least 44 labor laws are gone four have come after 50 years 50 years new education policy after 35 years at least modi has done something so there is hope my question is actually sir with regard to our competitiveness with regard to a very important area of the future which is artificial intelligence so we seem to be a little bit of a laggard is what is believed because we uh, america is of course on top israel is really good in that regard and china is also making a lot of headway so where do you think because in the future this is supposed to be the next big thing and with our kind of a laggard attitude due to you know policies of the past how do you think we are going to shape up in that new era that is okay let me let me say this see in artificial intelligence there are two things the algorithm you write very valuable and then the application algorithm in the application algorithm we are very good out of uh, 50 lakh people in it about 25 lakh people have been trained they work for global companies they use ai sir now the algorithm writing comes out of r&d and research in universities and high tech companies we don't have enough of them okay our research in universities only 5500 crores you know there is a spending of intel for one month you know that right china is spending 150 billion dollars on artificial intelligence by 22 to take on the us that's why the us is scared 
I went to Niti Aayog, met Amitabh Khan, told him we have to do it and all that thing about three years ago. They set up a small group. They came with silly suggestion. Then they finally said, oh, we got a good budget. How much? One and a half billion dollars, which is a joke. Even that they have not spent. So government is oblivious. What do we do? We need money, public money for R&D and research. But the good thing, I'll tell you, good news. There are thousands of startups in Bangalore using AI. People like Swiggy and uh, you know, Flipkart, everybody started using AI in a big way because they got huge data. Health tech companies are doing AI. Machine learning has come. A lot of things have happened in this country. We are two to three years behind the United States, two to three years behind China. They spend a lot of money. China spends $65 billion a year investing in startups a year. America spends $135 billion. We only spend $10-11 billion. We are behind, but we are improving, and we will conquer. And, you know, you talk about Israel. Yes, Israel is a small country. You hear about good companies, right? Now, you talk to the top 10 AI companies in India. They're as good as Israel or better than Israel. Some of them got better product Israel. So, you see a small one compared with $138 billion. For example, when you look at digitization, India comes 45. Singapore comes uh, for one. Singapore has got 50 lakh people, half of Bangalore. India has got 675 million, pe 675 million people having the internet. That's huge. But because of the huge numbers, everything looks small. So yes, there's a problem. But I think there's hope. A lot of things are happening. A question from Som D. He says sustainability is a huge issue. But yeah. GDP assumes that there will be more consumption. Is that a good idea given the environment conditions we are heading into? You know, Ma, I'm very happy you asked the question. To me, sustainability is a civilization issue. Indian civilization is built upon living in harmony with nature. Taking from nature what we need for a sustenance. Not destroying nature, not conquering nature. That's why we revere the cow. Why? Because the cow gives milk to our children, gives milk to us. Cow's excrement is used as fertilizer. So it's a self-sustaining system. It was built by our forefathers who thought about all this. And Gandhiji said, the world has enough for everybody's need, not for everybody's greed. Now the Western model is based upon conquest of nature, conversion of people, destroying nature's creatures, using it for their own Selfish reasons. And they destroy the environment. So sustainability will come if you go back to civilization rules, reduce our wants, reduce our power consumption, reduce everything else, live happily with what we have and improve. Go for alternate energy, use more uh, green manure, not artificial manure, right? Stop wasting food. So we have to go back to our cultural values and do it and India will do better. I mean, that's the only thing I can say. What is the role you envisage for the agricultural future as today people move away from agriculture with better education and on the other hand, poor income with increasing cost of inputs? See, let, see the question you got asked, do we need so many people in agriculture? No. 43% of uh, India's population is about uh, maybe uh, 60, 60 crore people. America has got 32 crore people out of which maybe two crore people are producing enough more than India. So do you need 60 crore people? They don't need. They should go into industry because they'll not earn enough money. Because agriculture has got automated. We need maybe 10 crore people. Okay? So if people move away, agriculture is not going to come down. Don't believe all that thing. We've got all these big farmers sitting down in Delhi, uh, you know, and all the thing, all of them, our agriculture production has gone up in Punjab and Haryana. So don't bother about that. Okay? What we need is larger holdings, more use of technology. Our productivity is 50% of the world's best. 
we can still increase product you can produce two times what you produce the same amount of land all right we can do much more what we need is lesser people in agriculture more people in uh, in the labor intensive industries so that they can get a better income and can we produce more yes we should become the world's largest exporter of food grains and agriculture products not using chemical fertilizers okay we got to use sustainability principles and we got to reduce waste we produce 320 million tons of fruits and vegetables largest after brazil why can't we become an exporter you know who is the largest exporter in the world of fruits and vegetables netherlands small country and you know what they do you use hydroponics they do greenhouse agriculture and all kind of stuff right so we can become an exporter so we have to learn so agriculture is a boom sector provided we do it right but we have to export sir when i was you know uh, by listening to you i could see that you know there are so many markers that we should look for and work towards and if i have to look for a current example i can see up as a story not everything but lot of markers that yogi ji is checking out whether it is creating four expressway so that the remotest part of up is connected to key cities in up and to delhi whether the state uh, you know that is going to inaugurate nine medical colleges this is in addition to seven medical colleges which were not functional they made it functional whether it is the kanya yojana wherein the family will get financial support so they can uh, send the girls to school or subsidizing electricity and favoring rules to the industry so that they set up industry not in lucknow but to rural parts of india uh, rural part of up um now when i look at all these things i see a fantastic business and a political case study uh you know we are talking about a state which is underdeveloped which is crime infested and overly populated and how yogi ji is turning it around why do you think bjp is not using this case study and replicating it if not in every state at least in bjp rural state my own example the state where i come from uttarakhand it is a state where you have hard working people they already have a very hard life they don't want to leave their state they want to stay there however and it is a state where you just have to develop the infrastructure and tourism is already there it's a all year tourism and it is a disaster you know cms are changing they are not doing anything they are just taking over more temples why do you think bjp is failing so big in other states while they have a success story in their hand see ma you told me you made a brilliant point is a question of leadership prime minister modi came Manmohan Singh was not able to control his cabinet. He was controlled from the bank. He was a cutputly good man, but cutputly no political legitimacy. Modi has come and done a lot of reforms. Yogi came against the SP, corrupt SP, communal SP. Now Modi has, Yogi has come and transformed. Right. So leadership is required. We need good leaders, and you know they will come. We have to work towards it. Many of you should get into politics. you're all educated you're all well meaning you must come into politics you must give money to political parties you must meet them and talk to them in bangalore we are starting something called bpac you know dipanjali you know bpac right bpac we are training 2000 people by another 10 years we already trained 350 to become ward councillors hopefully out of 2000 maybe 200 will get into politics they'll be better people we have to create a coalition of the good and that should come and i wrote about what you said in uh, news 18 and i said why cannot the bjp implement all the reform policies of prime minister modi at least in the states where the bjp is ruling they must do that like exactly what you said you know maharashtra will only fight didi will never do anything right correct and tamil nadu will go his own way because they're all opposition state they don't care they all think we are we, we want they all want to oppose modi because they'll lose their gaddi and you know so i think we the, i hope the bjp party party will have the sense to make sure 
that they go to all the states and force the state government to do reform. Uttarakhand, such a beautiful state. It can suddenly be developed if it gets better leaders. They need better leadership. Why can't JP Nadda, Amit Shah go there and tell them, we want you to implement this one, two, three. Why can't Prime Minister Modi call the Chief Minister every three months and say, tell me what you have done, what you have done. And they should listen to Prime Minister Modi because he's the only one who gets votes for them, right? All of us vote because of Prime Minister Modi, correct? Because we trust, trust him to be our leader. So they should do it. I agree with you. That's a big gap. And you must, uh, since you're, you, must, you must write to Prime Minister Modi and uh, you know, the BJP uh, top people and tell them why you're not doing this. See, in India, we have to give feedback. But keep giving the feedback again and again and again and again. It takes 10 times to remind to get something done. That's my experience for 35 years. He says, what is the role of sustainable indigenous systems of economy and education like Gurukul, Gaushala, the Indic way of agriculture in current Western way of economy, which, which generally impacts the environment and earth? So I told you, we have to go back to our civilizational roots. We have to learn how to make it work. And today, there's a premium for organic food. Premium. We pay a premium. We, you know, in Bangalore, we pay a premium for milk because it's from an Indian cow. Indian cow gives three and a half, four liters. We pay 100 rupees a liter. We don't want a Jesse milk because it is not very good. So there's enough consumption happening at a premium for people who want it. There are people who can't afford it. That's fine. At least that will drive it, make a drive towards more sustainable practices. See, all of you are highly educated. All of you are reasonably well off. Now, if you demand better goods, better way, you will create a demand. It will happen. So I think sustainable is important. The world has now understood that we are consuming one and a half times the sustainable produce of the planet. So we are impoverishing the planet, right? And India has to improve. All of us have to demand. Uh, I have uh, an observation that the children of farmers don't want to farm. But yeah. there are highly educated people, some foreign educated, who after a corporate job want to go back to farming. I'm one of them. Yeah. So, so how do you think that phenomena is coming up or how what, what impact it could have? See, the paradox is farmers are poor because they're not connected to markets. They produce, but they're not getting the market price, so they're poor. Now, you are well off and you're going back to farming to indulge your passion and to earn a little bit of money. And you know how to connect to markets. So in Bangalore, we're doing an interesting experiment. India has got 1,200 agri-techs. 250 have been funded. Now, if you connect them to farmers, farmers will get 20-25% more. Supply chain will be taken care of. Payment will be in 48 hours. We are trying to have a big drive to connect agri-tech companies started by young people like Minot and yourself maybe, you know, to connect farmers to market so farmers can get better prices. If farmers are able to get better prices, the children will go where do they get money. Why they want to work in a job getting 25,000 rupees a month when they can earn 40,000 rupees. We have to make agriculture self-sustaining for a larger number of people. And that is where we have to make sure farmers get market price. And that is the problem. And that's what I think we have to tackle. That's why more people like you going will be an inspiration for farmers' children to you know, do that. And then we are training farmers' children in Bangalore to connect to the market through an app, through startups. So you know, we are trying this experiment you know, in a big way in Bangalore. Hopefully, in two years, it will become very big. Today, agri-tech companies are buying 3,000 crores a month. Big Basket is buying 800 crores. Others are buying 3,000 crores a month. Two years back, they are buying only 600, 700 crores a month. In three years, they'll be buying 10,000 crores a month. And farmers are getting better prices, better income. So it has to move. 
you know, India has a very long history of business, you know, right yeah. from the, you know, Indus Valley civilization times, we have a continued history and we've been a country of entrepreneurs and businessmen. You know, I yeah. come from a community which is essentially a business community, but we have made zero efforts in studying our own business practices. We are all the MBA institutes, all the business institutes, they've just picked up something from the West and copy paste and do. And there is a lot of Indic knowledge of business, you know, which has a lot of values in terms of which are very relevant from a business perspective, which we, we are almost losing because everybody is getting. So can we make an effort to do a systematic study of Indian way of doing business? No, no, I agree with you because, you know, you see, if you go to Bombay, to RBI, you see a very peculiar thing. In the 1950s, board members, Indians, used to wear Indian traditional clothes. Dhoti and a cap and that thing, okay? And the board of RBI. In the 60s, they all started wearing suits. Why? We are a failed country. When you are a failure, you observe something of the best of a successful country. You want to ape them, you want to be like them. Today, it is reversed. I wear my kurta when I go for a board meeting. I wear my kurta when I go to Stanford or in, in Harvard anywhere. I'm very happy in the, my clothes. Why? I'm, I'm secure. Now, that is coming back. Now, young entrepreneurs are coming back. They are writing stories. But there's an Indian way of doing business. See, the Indian way of doing business is not the Western way. The Western way is built upon the Protestant work ethic of Mark Weber, right? Right? Protestant work ethic, where the individual gratification is important. Individual conquest is important. You see it in America, in the Western capitalism. Ours is based on the family model where the karta has to take care of everybody. Karta cannot take care of himself. He has to take care of everybody, right? He has to eat the meal last. So it's a very different culture. So we are very confused in business, whether to go there or not. But now, more and more people are coming secure. They're coming up. But what you say is right. We have to build success stories of what we have built and how it has been built. Corporate governance should be based upon our civilizational values. We have to create the business theory for which people like you and others should write more. In fact, I was the president of the All India Mime Association. I told them we need to have a case study center to write cases from Indians' point of view. Academics are writing 2025. It has to expand, but it's still based on the Western model. But, you know, slowly it will come up. We told a professor of IAM to write an Indian theory of business. So we need more writers. We need more people to come. It will happen. And India is diverging from the West and creating its own successful model. It's happening because the Western model is destructive. It's you know, not sustainable. It's destructive. Japan has got its own model. China has got its own model. We should have our own model, right? We are confused. We can't be in the East and the West. We belong to the East. We are not the West. We belong to our own civilization. And, you know, because of Nehru's policies of destroying what we have, control, you know, license, quota, raj, Western communism to come, the Soviet model, that has destroyed our thinking. And Lutyens Delhi is the worst part. They're holding us back. Lutyens Delhi should go. And all of you should demolish Lutyens Delhi. My question is from the fact that you mentioned that labor-intensive economy would do good to India. But uh, to me, I don't know why, but it does sound antithetical to the idea of efficiency. So if we will have a labor-intensive economy, then that will turn into increased input costs and uh, that might result into a cost push inflation and that might affect our competitiveness when it, when, when it comes to exports. So I just wanted to know your views on the same. So no, ma, see, 
what I have said is we need labor intensive industries also. For example, in garments, it's still labor intensive, even though machines and AI are taking over, we still need them. Electronic assembly is still labor intensive. When you talk about labor intensive, that means in the value added, labor has a higher component. That's all. You understand? Because these observe a lot more people. Can they go on for the next 30 years? No. We have a 20-year schedule where we need people to get jobs and give them skills. I don't mean that you must stop capital intensity. For example, all our auto manufacturers become full robots. Only robots are there in the auto manufacturing companies. People are gone. Now, there are certain industries where this automation has come in a big way. You can't reverse it. We need that. And when you have automation, robotics, machine learning, AI, you become competitive. For example, Havels has a factory in Geloth near Delhi. I'm on the board of Havels. They manufacture AC with a fully robotized, fully automatic plant at the cost cheaper than China. You understand? So, you know, so we have to do, do it in particular industries. We got a time limit of 15, 20 years. China did that, not all across. It doesn't mean you stop automation, stop the, we have to do both. We have done one you know, and we have suffered, but you know, we have to do this because we want to create the job. That's all. One question from Somdi. He asks, lesser compliances might lead to companies flouting labor rights and no, environmental no. norms. As it is, they don't, follow, as it is, they don't follow, follow the norms and they bribe that uh, fellows and you know, let, us, let us reduce them. You must uh, look at Manish Sabarwal's writings. He will explain to you what it is. All right. Uh, so this this, uh, this uh, pollution, you must understand. Let me tell you, out of 100 Indians, 95 are very honest, very straightforward. They don't bribe. Maybe 4% 4, 4 bribe to do things better. 1% will never follow the law. They're breakers. Now, even the 95%, many people are forced to give speed money. What to do? They're helpless, right? So, we cannot say everybody will flout environment law. There'll be some who flout environment law. They will bribe. We must uh, expose them, but the rest of us should follow. I have one very fundamental question. Uh, we still do not see ourselves as Indian. Uh, we see as... Uh, Andraites, we see as Gujaratis, we see as, you know, why I am saying this, I have uh, uh, some of the brilliant uh, young uh, people in industries, including your Infosys, where they had to leave the job because of the Telco cloud in the United States, uh, you know, uh, and vice versa. So how can we create this one Indianness, where we think of each Indian as our partner rather than thinking in small compartments of our language, caste, creed, what you know has been exploited all through by uh, Britishers and other rulers. See, first of all, I understand the question, the brilliant question. I thought about it. Let me answer it. First of all, we need to understand we are a country of 1.38 billion people, unlike any country in the world. We are a very diverse set of people with a lot of groups, with a culture, history, everything else, which is very different. We are like a natural forest where there are so many different things all living in harmony together. And it is what protects our civilization against destruction and has protected us despite thousand years of Islamic rule and all the thing. You know about all this, right? We have not been destroyed because they're so diverse. You cannot take away and change your minds. So it's so very diverse and it, you know, it leaves. It's a living civilization. It is good that the way the world has to be and we have to do that. 
But like you said, we have a problem of identity. And all of us are multiple identities. Look at me. I'm an Indian. I'm a South Indian. I'm a Kannadiga. I'm a Bengalurian. I'm a Konkani. I'm a Gauda Saraswat. I got multiple identities. Each of the identities is important to me. I'm an Indian. I'm very proud of being an Indian. But when I come to Delhi, I'm a South Indian. Don't harass me. Don't call me Madrasi. Okay? I'm very good. When I'm in Karnataka, I'm a Kannadiga. But I tell them I'm a minority under Article 2930 because I'm a Konkani. I'm a Konkani. I'm a minority. And within Konkanis, I'm a goddess harassment. So can I give up everything? I don't want to give up. That is what makes me creative, makes me good. It doesn't mean I must not live in harmony. So we must develop this unity and diversity theme with Nehru spoke up in a different way together, retain our identity. Now, all of us together, we're all different people. We have dressed differently, different rituals, eat different food, talk different language, but we're all united. Now, how do we foster this unity among us? We must make efforts to do that, right? And in the last country, for example, you go to Europe, everybody's an European to you, but they say, I'm a German, I am French, I am Finnish, I am Belgian. They all say that. But for you, it is a thing. Uh, we know things. So we have multiple identities. Let us invest in all of them, find commonalities and work towards that so that when you're outside India, we're all Indians. In the Indian community outside India, I'm a Telugu, I'm a Kannadika, I'm a Hindi, right? And you must do that. Nobody should be, nobody should dominate, correct? You know, I'm so sad. In Bangalore, alu mutter and, uh, you know, all that, you know, uh, alu mutter and, uh, you know, uh, paneer is dominating. I'm so upset because we got such lovely food in Karnataka. <laughs> <laughs> we got lovely food in Karnataka. Our Karnataka food is very good. My Mangalorean food is very good. You know, my you know North Indian food, Bakri roti is very good. We got so much food. You know, we we don't want this monoculture. So we must learn to live with all this diversity. For India to grow, Indian economy has to grow. And for Indian economy to grow, we need contribution from the youth of India. And I feel youth of India is lost in their social media. Instagram, this, this, and that. Even my... Ramesh, at the broad level, when you are growing up, I mean, your father also said you are getting, you know, you're wasting your time, you're doing this, mera beta ye kar hai, wo kar hai. or your father also, his grandfather did it. So every generation does it. They're there in every home. I, you know, that is, a, that is the issue there, everybody. You know, it's a normal thing. It happens to every generation. But I agree that they're getting addicted to this because this is very new. They're seeing something. My only solution is you must, your parents should talk him out of it, show him other interests. You know, after Corona, make sure he goes with friends, he meets people and all that, expand his horizon and give him a dream. Tell him that if you do well, you'll get this, blah, blah, blah. You can do this. Maybe for his uh, PhD, go to London School of Economics, blah, blah, blah. Give him that kind of dream and win him away slowly. It has to be done person by person by person. You know, we all been through that, right? We all been through that. It will happen. But, you know, addiction is bad. So you must make sure that, you know, parents should spend more time. They're the only solution I can think of. I can see that these children, okay, they don't have an attention span for reading, but they do have attention span for hearing podcasts. So they have different ways of accumulating knowledge than us. And my closing words, believe in your country. We will build a new India. We will build a better India for our children. We must become better and better. And we must become the India of Gandhiji's dream. Rama Raja should remain. Rama should come back. And Rama Raja should sing. Every Indian should realize their dream. Nobody should be deprived. We should work for that. Thank you.